There's really only one topic this week in our country, and that is Charlottesville. And what happened there? The rioting, the violence, murder, and the outworking of that. How do we come to terms with that? How do we understand it? And what do we do about it? And over the last several days, it has become clear, I think, to all of us that our nation is very good at reacting to things. It is not very good at resolving things. And so my question all week, knowing that this verse was what I was going to preach on, and by the way, that was weeks ago that I wrote this outline and made this decision, had no idea these events were going to unfold so perfectly to set us up to understand what this verse is saying. Had no idea. But all week I've been wondering, how on earth do I address this? How do I pray about this with the congregation? How do I address these issues with you? Because everything I say has a reaction right at the front of our brains, everything. If I say just something that is a plain fact of the matter, that white supremacists and neo-Nazis came prepared for a fight, and Antifa also came prepared for a fight, and that's what they did, and the violence was on both sides. The minute I say that, you know what the reaction is. Oh, you're just making an equivalence between racists and everybody else. That is, there is no excuse for that. That's just, that's, uh, that's reinforcing the racism of the neo-Nazis. Okay, so what if I turn it around? What if I say what ought also to be a plain fact of the matter? Neo-Nazis are traitors. When they do the Nazi salute, they are serving our enemies from long past. So if I say that, there's also a reaction. may not be as vocal, but the reaction is there, saying, yeah, but what about on the other side? They're traitors too. They're anarchists. They're fighting. They've been doing mayhem in the streets on the inauguration day and at Berkeley and at these college campuses over here and over here. They're assaulting people. What about them? Aren't they traitors? You see what's happening here? There's nothing I can say that will not get a reaction. And the reaction then provokes another reaction. And that reaction provokes another one. And pretty soon, what have you got? Facebook. <clears throat> We're all activists now. We've all got a script now. We all know what faction we belong to now. And we all know what we're supposed to say when the other side starts its lying and spinning and all of their corrupting talk, we all know how we're supposed to respond to that. We're reacting. And there's nothing we can say that will be heard. And so we find ourselves in this place where if you want to have any kind of genuine reaction to any of this that has happened, you find yourself saying, no one's listening. Before I even get the words out of my mouth, you've already decided what I'm saying, why I'm wrong, and how I ought best to be put in my place. And I guess the thing that is most heart-wrenching to me is that we have been at this place as a nation for a very, very long time. We're so polarized, it's unbelievable. We're polarized by ideology, by class, by race. We're polarized by zip code. We're polarized by experiences. We're polarized by career. 
And it, it doesn't seem to matter what the issue is. You ramp up the, the intensity of hatred and reaction, uh, no matter what it is, so that the simplest political issue becomes an issue of symbolic significance about Western civilization. And there's no compromise, there's not even a discussion going on. So these, all of these things weigh on us. Now what we're talking about as a church, we've dedicated these four weeks to a time of training, time of, of preparation, training to heal. Because we as a church have a very specific problem. As Christians in the United States, and in particular as evangelical Christians in that slice of the country from San Francisco all the way to the Canadian border on the West Coast, as Christians here, we're confronting a post-Christian culture in which not only are in our region, Chico Redding, 54% of the population as a whole completely unchurched, but another 41%, as we saw last week, have been churched, have had a pattern of church attendance, and have said, enough, I'm done, I'm out of it, I, I have no more need to go to church. I'm sick of it, I'm fed up with the things that go on there. I'm out, 41%. Now you put those two populations together, and we are looking at a post-Christian European reality here in California all the way up to the Canadian border. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It happened years ago and we're only now realizing it. So we have to confront this. We have to do something about this. And I said last week something that I have also been pondering all week. I said you may think that this that the war we're in is about race. And I've gone back and forth in my mind, should I have said that? Is that true? Would I still stand by that? That the central issue in our region, in our country, is not race, but something else. I said, the war is not about race, the war you're in today is about whether there will be Christian witness in California at all. That's the war you're in. That's the war we have been in for some decades now without realizing it. And so my question in thinking about that statement that I made last Sunday was, do I still stand by that? Race is a very serious issue in our country. It remains a deadly issue in our country. And on reflection, I still stand by that statement. I'll tell you why. Because there's no way to resolve the racial crisis in our country without gospel witness. It's not going to happen. So, if the churches are intent on reacting to what is happening in the culture, the same way everybody else is, then the devil's got us right where he wants us. We're talking about the point we want to make instead of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And in that way, Christian witness starts to wane. And the point we want to make starts to ascend and be exalted. The devil loves it when we go even further and we say, the point I want to make about this equals what Jesus would say about this. From left or right, we get this tendency to equate our view of the situation with Jesus' view of the situation. So then we're in a, a, a mode of proclaiming what amounts to our opinions with Jesus' name on it. And we think we're serving the kingdom and we think we're advancing the gospel, but in fact what all, all we're doing is proclaiming loudly our own opinion. And the devil sits back with his arm folded and says, my work here 
is done. Christian witness is over because they're so eager to talk about other things. So I stand by the statement on reflection. Our problem is not race. Our problem, our war, is whether we will be Christians at all. Last week, we took a look at this problem of the de-churched people coming to church and saying, I've had enough, I've attended for years, can't take it anymore, I'm out. And we've looked at the, we looked last week at the growth of that population and we said that is where we need to focus because there is a significant portion of that group of people who have made that decision, have come to that conclusion, and still have um, an offense that they carry against the church, but at the same time they're saying, I know that what I'm doing is not going to hold up. I need to go back. I know God is calling me to go back. I just don't know how, and I don't know whether if I do go back, I don't know if I can take it, honestly. I know that's hard to hear, that people would have, who, who have been our brothers worshiping alongside us, our sisters worshiping alongside us, serving alongside us. It's very hard for us to hear and to realize that that would be their attitude toward a service like this. But it's the truth. And last week we looked at this proverb, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Quarreling means the gate goes down, the walls are garrisoned and guarded, and no one is going to come into the city, and no one is going to go out of the city. That's what quarreling does. We're watching that unfold in our nation right now. There is no conversation. There is no dialogue. The gates are down. The bars are shut. We're locked in. And so we confronted last week the difficulty of what we face with what we're calling and what George Barna calls the de-churched. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a step toward a very practical question. Okay. This is a problem. This is a major challenge. Winning back those who have decided God is calling me to go back to church, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know, I don't know what to do with this offense. I don't know whether I can even take it when I go back. That's a major challenge. God has called us to it. What do we do? That's what we talk about this morning. The first thing we do is we give a gift to an offended brother. Free gift. No strings attached. We give them this gift because we know that this gift will be healing to them. It's the gift of listening. Our text this morning is about this past week in our nation's life, and it's about the past number of decades in our lives as evangelicals. Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. I don't know about you, but I think that is the best description of the past week in our nation's life ever. We're talking before we're listening. So as we train to heal, what's our job? Give the gift of listening. Let's talk about this. We're going to look at the warning that uh, Solomon gives by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 13 here, and then we will look at listening itself. How do you do it? Is this a passive thing or an active thing? How does this actually work? So um, 
let's dive into the warning and look a little more closely at it. If one gives an answer before he hears. We love our speeches. We have favorite speeches we like to give. And you probably know your spouse's favorite speech, your parents' favorite speech. You know how to push play on that speech. Much of your time may be spent trying not to push play on that speech because you've heard the speech. We love our speeches. Our speeches are rants where we tell the, the people who are usually not present, we tell them everything they need to know about why they're wrong, everything they need to know to make it right, why they're, and it gets worse, we pull out the ugly words, stupid, corrupt, ignorant, you know this speech. And um, what tends to happen when we encounter someone who has the opposite opinions from us is the speeches start to come out. They got their speeches, we got our speeches. Topic. And we just pushed play on all the speeches and nobody's listening. So that's what's been happening in our country on the issue of race. But I would put it to you that much of what passes for counseling, discipleship, and Bible study among Christians for the last number of years is actually giving the answer before we've heard anything from the other person. Because we've got our speeches ready to go, and so when someone brings up a topic, pornography, addiction, work ethic, debt, worship, whatever it may be, We've got the speeches ready to go. We've got the answer. All you need to do to change your life is hear my speech. We do this. So I'm not going to dwell on that anymore except to say that um, as a pastor, um, I kind of live by speeches given speeches all the time. So when you get in the counseling room as a pastor, you, you have to make a decision really fast. Is this just going to become a moment where I listen or don't, and then there's that moment where the, the person sitting across the table from me hits play on the sermon that I have ready for this person. And then the rest of the counseling is just me orating to them about the thing that I think this is really about. I have to make a decision whether that's how I'm going to do this. And I can tell you uh, flatly that if I decided that a quiet conversation in the counseling room was about me waiting to give a speech, I can tell you there would not be very many of those appointments. There would not be very many of those conversations. And, you know, there really wouldn't be very many people in the church either. Because who goes into a conversation where you need to unburden your heart only to trigger a speech? Who does that? I don't. When I need to unburden my heart, I want this, this organ, the one that hears, uh, paired, of course, with the, the brain that actually does the listening. But I want this one, not this one. So I would ask you to think through this as you've encountered people where you say, Okay, this is a needy person. Uh, someone needs to take time with this person and show them some things that needs to happen in their life. I am Johnny on the spot here. I'm going to take the time to do that. Think about 
how did you handle those situations? I would like you to examine and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what did you say? How much time was spent listening versus how much time was spent talking? And then ask this next very painful question, did anything change? Because if it didn't, what were all the speeches about? Maybe they were about giving speeches before hearing what the issues were. Here's the thing that I find is so life-giving about the body of Christ, and so life-giving about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, where when we actually unburden our hearts to each other, and when we are actually heard, and the things that we say are spoken back to us as a way of saying, did I understand you rightly? Or as a way of saying, yes, I heard exactly what you said. When that kind of exchange happens, you know what's going on there? The power of God. The might and grace of the Holy Spirit is taking two hearts and he is bringing them together to a shared understanding of something that's going on in life. It is a beautiful thing. It is a powerful thing. Now let me ask you this. Why would we think that evangelism would be any different? Why do we think that evangelism is talking points instead of listening points? Why would evangelism, which has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, why would taking the gospel to those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ be any different from giving the gospel and ministering it to each other? Well, it's not any different. The gospel and evangelism is empowered as we gain the trust of someone that they would actually unburden what is really on their minds. What are we talking about there? Shame. Do you talk about your shame with just anybody? Do you talk about your shame with someone who you know has a speech prepared for your shame? No, we're not idiots. Why would we think that evangelism would be different? It's not. Bringing the gospel to those who don't know Jesus Christ, including those who have been in the church and left it, bringing the gospel to them is a matter of withholding the answer until we hear. That's what that's about. Um, okay, so I'm trying to exercise self-control. That's what you're seeing here. And it's not working. Uh, have you ever taken EE training? Evangelism explosion training? You know what you do there? You got this stack of cards. You know what it is? It's a telemarketer script broken up into cards. Now, before I go any further with this, I profited from EE training, okay? It's, it's not evil, it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world, but I'm just talking about the orientation here. If you have been trained that evangelism is talking, then I guarantee you that Proverbs 18.13 is about you. <laughs> you were trained to give the answer before you hear. You may start with the Kennedy question, but are you listening to the answer? Or are you going on to the next card? See, this is the problem we've got with evangelism. We've been evangelizing as if it were marketing instead of evangelizing as if it were listening and healing. It's a major problem. Now, Here's the warning embedded in verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his 
folly and shame. Now, here's what we need to do with those two words. It's very easy to look at a verse like this and say, yeah, (laughs) I really do need to kind of stop doing that because I just missed so many opportunities. Uh, You know, it's, it's just not very good for me to, it's not effective for me to not listen and then give a speech. I get it. But that's not the warning here. The warning is not he who gives an answer before he hears will be ineffective in applying evangelism explosion. That's not what this is saying. This is saying he who gives an answer before he hears, it is to him two things, folly and shame. Question. What is Jesus' attitude toward folly and shame? What is the attitude of Proverbs toward folly and shame? I'm asking the same question twice. Jesus' attitude is Proverbs' attitude. Because Jesus is the voice of Proverbs. We've said this before. Okay? So, is folly a thing where Jesus... It kind of sits back and says, huh, well, that's, that's disappointing. I wish he hadn't done that. Is that Jesus' attitude toward folly in Proverbs? I don't think so. Folly is at the core of sin in Proverbs. Right at the core. It's right at the very heart of it. And shame results from that. The shame is not, oops, I'm embarrassed that I gave that whole spiel and it actually wasn't touching anything that you were talking about. That's not the shame that's being talked about here. The shame is moral degradation and realizing I'm in the gutter and I didn't even, I don't even know how I got here. That's shame in Proverbs. So what this is doing, this warning, is raising the significance of something that we think of as uh, no worse than a kind of faux pas, bad move, ineffective, not your A game. And Jesus is saying, I'm not disappointed by that. I'm repulsed by it. Look at some of the context here. Go back to verse 6. Let's see what it says about fools. Verse 6 of chapter 18. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Oh, that's Twitter. That's Facebook. That's talk radio, that's TV, that's all of it. And Proverbs is saying, everything you say is just neon signs saying, beat me, beat me, beat me up, knock me out, punch me. It gets worse, verse 7. A fool's mouth is his ruin. With the fool... Every time he opens his mouth, he's destroying himself and his work and his plans and her desires and her relationships. The fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips, watch this, are a snare to his soul. It's not just socially embarrassing. It's a trap for the essence of your life. So this is what it means to commit folly. When you give the answer before you hear, it is your folly. It's that kind of thing, snare to your soul kind of thing. Uh, Look a little bit lower, verse 12. This is the verse immediately before our text. And our text makes a lot more sense when you put this verse in front of it. Before destruction, a man's heart 
is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So before the lightning strikes and things that you can't control land on your head, there's haughtiness, acting like you can control it, you've got this, you've accounted for all the contingencies. And in that haughtiness, everything comes crashing down on your head. Humility comes before honor. Haughtiness comes before destruction. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. What is that? Haughtiness. The destruction is folly and shame and the, and the consequences and results of that. So, just to drive this warning home, we have, as evangelicals, politicized the gospel for 30, 40 years. We've made it about all kinds of things that tick us off about our culture. The right does it, the left does it. And then they struggle over who's doing it worse. And after decades of doing this, what have we got? What have we earned for this? I would put it to you that we have earned offended brothers and sisters who came to church looking for healing the gospel and the grace of God and instead they got crossfire or whatever. So the warning is for us and the warning is listen. Listen. To the people around you opening up their hearts, listen to them. Give them that gift. Give them your ear. Because not to do that is shameful. And it is a level of folly that is destructive. It's, it's the ruin of the church. Um, so let's talk practically about listening. So being uh, a speaker a preacher, I just, in all honesty, listening is a learned behavior for me, not something I'm particularly talented at. Um, I'm always thinking of things to say. I have to intend to listen. I have to, I have to work at this. And um, I have a hunch that, um, I, that you'll receive this the right way um, I'm pretty good at it. I've gotten to the place where I love listening. Love it. It's the best thing in the world. Because it's front row seat to watching the Holy Spirit work. And so it's purely selfish. It's pleasurable for me to listen. And because I love it, I have learned how to do it more. Everything that we love to do, we want to get better at because we want to succeed more at it. So when I started to get the, the pleasures of listening coming down into my soul, I realized, hey, this is good stuff. This is better than drugs. Because <laughs> it's truth. It's not hallucinatory. So... I think I want to listen more. I want to figure out how can I make people more able to unburden themselves? How can I gain more trust by being a person who is safe to unburden yourself to? How can I do that more? How can I get better at this? Here's what I've found. Open questions, not closed questions. Uh, when Bridget and I were first married, we were often uh, able to have lunch together at home, and on the lunch hour was this uh, old TV show that you may have heard of uh, called Perry Mason. We were like Perry Mason junkies. We just, I think we watched like 50 seasons. I don't know how long that show was on, but it was... 
we we followed the the whole progress of Perry Mason on our lunch hours. And so in, in Perry Mason you learn about closed questions because there's all these courtroom scenes and the job of the lawyer is to ask a question that guides the witness to the right answer. The lawyer is never going to ask a question to which he does not know the answer. The lawyer is not asking questions to learn. The lawyer is asking questions to trap or expose or whatever it may be. Closed questions are the tools of control in a conversation. Did you see someone holding a knife? That's a closed question. Who was it who held the knife? It was the butler, of course. You know, these, these kinds of things, these are closed questions designed to get the witness to say the thing that triggers the next closed question and further entraps the witness. Do you realize that's evangelism explosion? Do you evangelize this way? Let me ask you questions to open you up, but I know all the answers already. And if you don't give the correct answer, I'm just going to kind of categorize your answer, and that'll lead me to the next card. If you ask closed questions of people, know this. You are trying to control them. You're trying to direct the conversation. That's the opposite of what needs to happen. The conversation needs to open. The hearts need to open. The burdens need to be rolled off, not guarded. So if we ask open questions, what did you think about Charlottesville? What did you think about this? I actually use this as, as parenting um, uh, with, with my boys. I just love listening to them talk. It, it didn't matter if, if from the time they were babies. I loved listening to them talk, even when they had no words. I just wanted to hear what they had to say. So I would just ask them questions. They didn't know what the questions were. didn't matter. They would talk. And so today, I don't, I don't want to pin them down with my questions. I want to open them up. And so... I just, I just want to hear them talk. Bring out what is inside. Open questions will do that. Closed questions will shut down the conversation. If you're having trouble with this, think about the kinds of questions you're asking. Are you trying to lead the person with your questions? You're going to shut it down. If you're just trying to open the person up, ask open questions. It will accomplish that. Now, I would put it to you, if you think listening is passive, that in fact this is an activity. This is something you have to actively do. You have to look and think and observe and be watching for opportunities to ask another open question that could bring out more from that person. You realize what you're doing when you're asking open questions? No control no agenda, you just want to know what's on your mind. You know what you're doing? You're giving them the gift of attention. You realize how hard it is to be heard today? People are hurting because of this. If you open them up and listen, you're doing something healing right there. And you will watch the Holy Spirit work in that conversation. You'll have a front row seat to that. Next thing that I do is I give free attention, no strings attached. In other words, while you're talking, I may be observing, I'm observing all the time, but I'm observing neutrally rather than evaluating. I'm not sitting there thinking, well, that was a mistake. Well, that was the wrong thing to say. Well, that was a heresy right there. What are they doing thinking this kind of stuff? That's not what's in my mind. Even, listen carefully, 
even when what is coming out is wrong, I am still not evaluating it. You know why? Because in some sense, it's right. And if I find the way in which the person is right, then we can address what is wrong. But if all I say to them is evaluation of what they're saying, they've just unburdened their heart to me about shame that they feel, and my response is, yeah, what you did was, you know, that was pretty dark sin there. Okay, if that kind of evaluation is what comes across, then not only is the heart going to shut down, the burden's going to be guarded instead of rolled off, but in fact, in all of the correction that I would give out of that evaluation, they wouldn't be able to receive any of it or change or apply it. It's just, okay, 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 I'm wrong. So if we're talking about listening, I start with open questions and then what comes out, I don't evaluate, I just observe. There's a big difference between the two. Um, and in that way, I'm working toward a goal. And the third thing that I do in working toward that goal is giving what I call generous patience. I'm just going to keep listening. Keep asking open questions. I'm going to keep observing without judging. I'm just going to keep doing that. Generously, freely, as long as it takes until we reach that point where I and the person I'm talking to have a shared common understanding of the issue at hand. You realize how valuable that is? When, when after several conversations with somebody, you can say, we are on the same page. We're looking at this thing from the same perspective. And that's hard one. We spent a lot of time doing this. We put in a lot of time together trying to arrive at that shared understanding. That's my goal in every conversation that I have. Truth be told, it's my goal in every sermon. Um, it, many of you are, are so encouraging about the sermons. I'm glad you like them. What I want you to understand is they are the fruit. If they offer anything at all, they are the fruit of listening. That's where it comes from. Now, you may have a question in your mind. Doesn't this ever stop? Shouldn't there come a point when you say, okay, now I've heard enough of confusion from you, I've heard enough of your sins, enough of your heresy, and now I'm going to give you the answer. I understand what you're dealing with. I've heard it, I've listened to you, I've been very patient, but now you need to hear the answer from me. Doesn't that point ever come? And the answer is no. Because if I'm saying I've heard enough of your confusion, I've learned enough about your heresy, what am I giving? I'm giving evaluations of what that person is saying and I really have not arrived at a common place a common account, a common understanding of what the issue is. I'm just giving them another opinion. Now, does a time come for an answer? Oh, yes. We'll talk about that in two weeks. We're not going to get to the answers that we should be giving for two weeks more. Because the whole goal here in listening is to invest in a partnership, a shoulder-to-shoulder co-laboring on an issue. That's why you listen. That's why you want to hear more about the other person, because you're not 
teaching them, you're building a partnership with them. We're going to talk about this in much more detail next Sunday morning as we continue training to heal. But what is the goal of all of this listening? Get shoulder to shoulder. Get alongside. And, And get that shared common understanding of the issues involved. You have a prime way to do this right now. There should be no shortage of conversation about Charlottesville. So one thing you could do today is just start asking open questions of other people's perceptions of Charlottesville. You will get very quickly to the burdens on their heart, what they feel about this. And if you listen long enough, you can say, you know, I would have pegged you as a a socialist, but I actually agree with you about that. I'm glad I listened. I would have pegged you as some kind of neo-Nazi nutcase, but now that I'm listening to you, I realize that's not who you are. And you care about other things. And I actually, I actually agree with the things that you care about. Because I see now we've got a shared common understanding of these kinds of things. If you do this, you will see the Holy Spirit soften your heart. You will see the Holy Spirit soften the heart of the person you're talking to. You will have a front line, front row seat at the work of the Holy Spirit doing healing. We will talk about what that partnership looks like Next week, we will talk about giving answers in the context of that partnership the week following. And then we go to work because this is not a drill. In September, we start talking directly with those who have abandoned church. And you will see how I do it, how I approach it. And you will see, I believe, what ensues from that. A couple of questions here. If you uh, wrote one on a card, just hold it up. Somebody will uh, come grab it and bring it forward. (laughs) That's nice. Somebody says, thanks for listening to me. You're welcome. It was a privilege. Um, Aren't we foolish when we enter... Okay, I've, I think I need to back up. Um, this reminds me of Matthew 7, 1 through 5, judgment proclamation. Aren't we foolish when we enter into the space where only Christ himself can judge? Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. You remember what he followed that up with? The measure you give is the measure you'll get. Powerful, and it is uh, exactly uh, the right thing. What do you do when you're on the other side and you don't feel like others listen to you? Um, I feel like that a lot, and what I do is I just start in with the open questions and I start listening to them. And a funny thing starts to happen. When I listen to them, they, they change what they talk about. They stop regaling me with their orations and their rants and they start talking about their hearts because trust is powerful. And so when when I start asking those open questions and really listen to the answers, then the conversation changes and because I gave that gift, they are open to hearing. Uh, So uh, that's what I do and it, it happens a lot. Um, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. This is from Mark 4. Uh, we first need to listen well to Jesus to know how to listen to others. I, I think this is a very good point. Uh, we, we listen to Jesus when we're actually just talking to ourselves, and we call it listening to Jesus. 
Um, that's a monologue, that's not a dialogue. Listening to Jesus involves actually parsing and working through and wrestling with what he is really saying. And uh, that's part of what is uh, being said because of um, the, uh, uh, the difficulty of having ears to hear, uh, having the mind and heart to listen. Listening is often referred to as the bigger part of communication. Um, I like that. I think that's true. Um, those who listen can communicate because they know who they're talking to. And uh, uh, those who don't listen are invariably ineffective communicators because they don't know. They're just firing words at things. So uh, our objective here in training to heal is to come deeply to the place where we love listening to people because the fruit of it is so good and so powerful and the fruit of those partnerships that we uh, come to establish with people is so rich and I would commend the pleasure of listening to you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you somehow are able to listen to us. And when we pray to you, you are able to receive not just those prayers, but everything behind them. And you are able to receive even the things we don't know how to say. So, Lord Jesus, we call upon your name right now. Make us listeners. Develop a new heart within us, a heart to heal instead of a heart to wound. We ask you to do it for your own glory, for the sake of your kingdom and the witness of your gospel. We ask it urgently and we ask it with confidence because you are good and no one cares more about this work than you. We ask it in your name and all God's people said, amen.